Hello, I'm Paul Carenza. Welcome to the first of a series of specials of the British Broadcasting Century podcast. We've done season one. That covered the prehistory of the BBC. 21 episodes to reach day three of the British Broadcasting Company. Even I didn't think we would take that long, but we kept finding more stuff. So season two will cover the first year of the BBC's life, end of 1922 and then 1923, with the first plays, the growth of the company, Savoy Hill, the Radio Times, and so much more. But to buy myself time to fully research and get those shows right, we are having an interregnum, an interseasonal period some specials for you that don't quite fit the normal mould of this podcast. Instead of the usual shows that I try and make a sort of pacey documentary, lots of different voices telling a story anchored in history, now we've got something a bit different for these specials. One voice for much longer. You would have seen the runtime of this episode. It is much, much longer, in fact. It's a pretty technical one, this as well. But it's a matter of preserving a voice from history a voice that gave us broadcasting, so we owe it to him. Next time, we're going to have a parliamentary reenactment of the first debate on broadcasting. In a couple of episodes' time, we've got the memoirs of the second voice of the BBC, Percy Edgar, as read by his grandson, David Edgar. And this time, courtesy of another pioneer's grandson, I give you the full works of a valedictory speech by Captain H.J. Round, rarely, if ever, heard before in its entirety. How little of my own history might be useful anyway. It's a round's eye view of radio. Yes, this episode, we've got some proper history for you here on the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. This is London calling. Hello, hello, you are all most welcome. I mean, you are all space most welcome, not your almost welcome. You're very welcome to this first special. It's a rare recording of one of radio's true pioneers, Captain H.J. Round, a man referred to as the father of British broadcasting. I've got a few episodes lined up that are longer form or different or not quite so time-specific in our big story of British broadcasting. They're also themed in that they all fill in some gaps from the story in season one, and they're also vital to have here because we want this to be an audio museum of sorts. So in season one, it's been a tale to tell, but for now, we are looking more at exhibits all of their own. Before I introduce you to Captain Round, though, delighted to hear from Graham Hoadley on our Facebook page. Do find us there. We've got a page, which is mostly me sharing things about this podcast. We've also got a Facebook group, which is others sharing their broadcasting history findings. So do join both. Graham Hoadley got in touch uh, based on our clip of Helena Millay, the first broadcast comedian. Uh, we played her last episode and earlier in season one. Graham is, in fact, Helena Millay's second cousin twice removed. So Graham got in touch talking about Helena Millay's noted newly illustrious theatre family, to quote him. Her aunt and uncle apparently ran a number of music halls in the late 19th century. Helena's cousin Nellie married Walter Gibbons, who built the London Palladium in 1910. So quite the theatrical dynasty. And Graham is one of two Helena Millay relatives, in fact, that we've had get in touch recently. Yeah, so the family tree continues. And in fact, if you are a descendant, a relative, or, you know, in some way connected to any of the broadcasting pioneers we mentioned, do get in touch. On which, that's how this special has come about. When David Jervis got in touch about his grandfather, 
This episode's hero, Captain Henry Joseph Round, MC. And he is indeed a hero, thanks to his direction-finding invention. It's suggested by many people, including at the time Brigadier General Sir George Cockerell, that Captain Round essentially won the First World War. Thanks to his direction-finding invention, he could spot when German radio signals and therefore when German ships were moving hundreds of miles away because he could track the source of the radio waves. He gained a secret name, Captain X, as he worked for military intelligence and he was awarded the Military Cross in 1918. But in terms of how H.J. Round fits in with the story of broadcasting, well, he is right there through the heart of the story. If radio is a stick of rock, Captain Round's name is one of those right through the middle of it. He joined the Marconi Company in 1902, age 21. He was right there at the start of Marconi's experimenting with wireless telegraphy and telephony. Based in the US to start with, Round worked under David Sarnoff, godfather of American radio. He helped develop the idea of tuning a radio so you weren't overwhelmed with every signal at once. He essentially also discovered LEDs, electroluminescence, in 1907. 50 years before they were essentially rediscovered. In 1912, Round had an adventure up the Amazon, installing wireless stations, and he mentions in his speech something of the rather slim diet that he had on such remote expeditions. Round came to England with the Marconi Company, uh, becoming their chief engineer. He looked at valve amplification, and then after the war, high power transmission, so that meant longer distances, including in 1919, when he sent the first voice west across the Atlantic that of W.T. Ditcham, his own right-hand man. To Chelmsford then for the two of them. Chelmsford was the first big one. And I think uh, this was the first broadcasting station in the world. Where they would read railway timetables and then news, presenting music, all as a test of quality and range. And that is where our podcast began, because that's when broadcasting was born. Round was there, making it all happen, broadcasting Dame Nellie Melba to the world, and you'll hear his take on that on this episode. In fact, here's a little extract of his Melba reminiscence, in case you can't quite find it. It's approximately 51 minutes into this podcast. So if you want to skip to the full story, you can go there. And in this mini-excerpt, Captain Round recalls what happened when the valve blew on Melba's last song, the transmission failed, and he was the one to tell the singer that she needed to sing her closing number once again. Oh, and then uh, the third song, an intermediate valve bust on the panel. My assistant, Ditchum, came out and he said, valve gone. I said, how long did it take to repair it? But to put another one in, no, it's about two minutes. So I rushed into Melba and I said, Madam Melba, the world is calling for more. I hadn't told her, of course, we'd broken down. <laughs> she said, are they? <laughs> She was only down by contract with the Daily Mail, one of our newspapers, to sing three songs. So I got her to sing up to a total of 11 songs on the, <laughs> on the strength of their breakdown. After Melba, broadcasting was banned in Britain for 18 months. Official frowned on using radio for amusement and shut us up. Peter Eckersley and 2MT took over the reins, just down the road from Round's lab in Chelmsford. And then Burroughs in London, of course, with 2LO and... Captain Round was still designing those transmitters, including the BBC's first transmitter in 1922. The early BBC benefited from new microphones thanks to him. He invented the more sensitive Marconi Sykes magnetophone in 1923. That was the standard BBC mic until 1928. That made possible a major outside broadcast first, 1924's Nightingale and the Cello, which we'll 
get to in about 20 episodes time. Wireless telephony, transmitters, microphones, PA systems, gramophone recording systems. It's difficult to know what broadcasting would look like today if it weren't for this cigar-chomping, three-piece suit-wearing genius. Into World War II, he developed sonar and radar. His eldest son, John, was a Spitfire pilot, had died in that war, and Round himself lived until 1966. And by then, he'd notched up 117 patents in his career. Back in 1952, though, he was awarded the prestigious Armstrong Medal by the Radio Club of America. E. Howard Armstrong, that's the inventor of FM, known as the father of modern radio and the most prolific and influential inventor in radio history, he awarded this medal. Round travelled to New York in December 1952 to receive the award and give the speech you're about to hear. At the actual event, E. Howard Armstrong gave a 20-minute celebratory introduction. I'm going to switch it around and include that tribute at the end of this podcast because I want to get to Captain Round's speech a little sooner. So, Armstrong's speech is to come. I've actually cut about 13 minutes of Howard Armstrong's speech as well, as it does get incredibly technical. So is Captain Round's, but we will leave his intact for historic reasons. I could edit but I won't. It's history. And this has been sent to me by David Jervis. So thank you, David, for that and for kind permission to use it in its entirety. This is a special, so it's long. You can take it or leave it or come back to it. It's up to you. But if you thought we were nerdy before, you ain't seen nothing yet. So it does get rather technical. It's uh, too technical for my small brain at times. I hope you appreciate its worth, though. Some of it can be tricky to decipher as well because of the recording tech uh, or manner of speech. So just be ready for a world of thermionic valves, oxide-coated filaments, but also a world of Marconi and Melba and stewed partridge. So I think you'll enjoy it. On the night, you would have heard Armstrong's introduction, which you can hear at the end of this podcast. And then this, Mr. Harry Hobb reading the citation for the award, And then just under an hour or so of the acceptance speech of the man himself, Captain H.J. Round. The Armstrong Medal is awarded to members in recognition of individual research within the spirit of the club for important contributions to the radio art and science. Before presenting the medal, I'm asking Harry Hawk, chairman of the medal committee, to read the citation. Harry Hoff, please. Mr. President, the Armstrong Medal of the Radio Club of America for the year 1952 is awarded to Henry Joseph Brown in in recognition of his unexcelled contributions to the art of direction and position position finding by radio. For the invention and amplifying and receiving means for short waves of unparalleled sensitivity and for the application of his discoveries to the cause of freedom and to the rendering of service to mankind. Thank you very much, Harry. Now, Captain Brown, on behalf of the Radio Club of America, I have the honor to present to you the Armstrong Medal. Mr. Chairman, Major Armstrong, all my other friends, 
who I've known for many years. I'm afraid that you'll find that I'm not very articulate. But I would like to add, before I start my prepared talk, a few remarks about that uh, affair of the Battle of Jutland, or rather about that period during which we were carrying out those direction-finding uh, measurements on the positions of ships in the North Sea. When we started the art of direction-finding with valves, with tubes, I should say, <laughs> or, or what my wife calls them, bottles, uh, when we started that, uh, we were... Uh, as uh, anyone who reads that uh, old paper of mine, I'm not going into uh, all, all of it is really in that paper. You'll find all the details and all the troubles. Uh, the, um, uh, we started with little knowledge of one particular error. That was the night error. It's practically cured, even on long waves now by new methods. But at that time, we didn't know there was such a thing as night error, and we gaily... Uh, took directions in the daytime and watched ships going and then we went on giving reports at night of uh, uh, movements of stations, movements of ships and all that. Well, the Admiralty were very secretive. They accepted all our reports but didn't tell us anything and didn't tell us what the ships were, who they were. But one day I was up at the Admiralty uh, talking to the uh, captain who was in charge of, uh, officially in charge of our stations for at headquarters. And um, he said, who do you think that certain station is? He named the letters. I've forgotten them now. Name the letters. Who do you think it is? I said, I don't know. It uh, seems to move pretty fast. It uh, moves an awful lot every day. He said, yes, you, uh, you take it out to sea about 80 miles in an hour every night, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I said, yes, uh, we, we thought it was, uh, we think, I think it's a Zeppelin or something like that, but it does move pretty fast. Why does he do it every night? He says, it's the island of Borkham, I don't know. <laughs> You see, we weren't always quite as accurate as Admiral Jackson said, but we gradually learned, of course, the real trick was to learn when to reject the reports. Uh, we didn't, when uh, the slightest trace of night error was on, we uh, just uh, threw the readings aside and didn't report after that. <laughs> I, in, I hope I won't bore you with a little of this back history. I, I'm not going to include very much of that war history. It's been written up. But uh, in my conceit, I thought that possibly a little of my own history might be useful. Anyway, it's a round's eye view of radio. <laughs> uh, in the year 1897, that's a pretty good long time ago, I was still at my local grammar school in Cheltenham in England. Like most grammar schools, we were frequently visited by special lecturers. And one afternoon, one of these special men came down to tell us the story of Hertz, and quite incidentally about a young Italian named Marconi. He gave us a demonstration of ringing a bell over the length of the hall. 
Although very interested in science, I didn't get up any interest in this new idea and scarcely remembered reading anything about Marconi and his work during the next four years. From 1898 to 1902, I spent the usual time at college, filling my head with the usual things and passing the usual examinations. But during my last year, scholarship funds ran short, and I did a bit of tutoring to a young blood with a lot of money who had bought himself a complete spark coil and coherer arrangement. So I taught him a bit of calculus, and he showed me how wireless worked, still, however, only over the length of the room. Education now finished, I was thrown on the coal world to look for a job, and I came across an offer by Marconi's Wireless Telegraph Company in the English Electrician to take young students on for training and trial at 10 shillings a week and all found. I duly applied for the trial job, and after having been told that I had a lot to forget, I was taken on. At uh, the time, I remember the, the old found was the thing that attracted me, not so much the ten shillings. They gave us a glorious time uh, at, uh, for our training. They gave us a glorious time at the now famous seaside resort of Frenton-on-Sea, then a mere unknown village. Mixed up with early morning bathing, hauling up masts, learning to tie knots, a bit of moss, parkwells and coherers, were the delightful evenings we spent with the village girls, who, were, of course, were honored by the company of the world's first radio engineers. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of six weeks, we were examined, and if we passed, which I fortunately did, we were sent to Chelmsford for further action. There we were given work in the test room of the small factory until we could be distributed. My time came quickly, and I accepted a job to go to the United States and join Marconi's Wireless Telegraph Company of America, a company recently formed. I landed here in New York in the fall of 1902, and I stopped in America until 1908 when I returned permanently to England, rather regretfully and thoroughly Americanized even to my speech. <laughs> <laughs> that period, 1902 to 1908, would require a great dramatist to tell the tale properly, and I can only give you a few rather disconnected stories of the happenings of those years. Firstly, I was sent to Babylon, and there I learned to operate in Morse and continental Morse, and in the end I spoke neither language as well as a second-class ham. Ships passed us daily fitted with Marconi's wireless, and it was our job to communicate with them. Our apparatus for communication was housed in that little hut some of you may have seen at Riverhead, which I identified in Major Armstrong rescued from a field in Babylon in 1929. The transmitter was a sim <coughs> simple just a spark coil, a capacity of uh, 0.015 in latent jars, a jigger, which was our word for a high-frequency transformer, and a telegraph key. The receiver was the back box that contained the coherer, tapper, relay, and a host of condensers and shunts. And outside, there was a tape recorder. You can hardly imagine how helpless one felt with just that black box with its impersonal tapper rattle as the only connection between you and the outside mysterious world. There was no adjustment for signals of different strength, and of course the only criterion of different strengths was the fact that the tapper and the relay had to be readjusted, and not many ever really acquired the art. I talked with Marconi in after years as to how that complicated coherent tapper relay inca system came about, and he definitely told me it was the rigid requirement 
of government telegraph services for recorded messages that forced him to it, but he was always trying to get away from it to a more reasonable practice. And it was not very long before he introduced the magnetic detector. That detector, while perhaps not quite up, uh, up to some electrolytic and crystal types in sensitivity, was the limit in utter reliability and revolutionized the previous erratic services. It remained, a short distance work, the standard receiver right up to amplifying days. In the world outside, I mean outside the Smarconi service, one by one there arrived the Fleming valve, uh, although that was rather connected with Marconi, uh, various electrolytic detectors, I think there were in general two types, one invented by Fessen and one by the uh, Germans. One was a bit of wire sticking out and the other was a hole. Uh, and then a spate of crystals. Only one of these crystals was really worthy to be a commercial article, and that was carborundum. All the others, while being excellent in experimenters' hands, and I expect many of you hammers have used them, uh, failed the rigid requirements of a transmit-receive service and those terrors of the ether atmospherics. All these detectors depended on the telephone receiver, but this seemed at once <coughs> to give you a real communion with the surrounding space. Of course, in reality, the gain was that the ear was being used to the full extent to measure strength, quality, types of signals, and even to permit mental separation of superimposed <coughs> signals. All operations the co coherer couldn't perform. For a long time, official, official demanded the tape records. But finally, they had to give up the struggle. I remember on one famous occasion, we took a large number of messages from a ship, and the ink had broken down, and uh, we read, uh, read the signals off the tapper, wrote the messages, and sent them off. And we nearly all got the sack for doing it, although we collected a good deal of money with the telegrams. How any of those operators could really operate a coherer set, I don't know, but it was very seldom they could read more than just OK RD. <laughs> <laughs> One little story, story will illustrate this. La Savoie was a fine French liner. Uh, with a fine French wireless man. They came along one day and offered the then large number of 50 messages to us, and we told them the GG. A very good, uh, good operator who, however, suffered with a perpetual liver, I think that was due to Babylon beer, <laughs> took the traffic with no request for repetition, just a simple GG between each message. <coughs> At the end of the performance, the Frenchman wanted to express his delight and did so rather effusively. The shore operator had a particularly bad liver that morning. He replied, that's okay, OM, but tell them that at the head office. The Frenchman got a few dots and dashes, but wouldn't admit defeat. And he replied, okay, okay, my dear, but what say you of ice? The story will appeal to any Atlantic traveler who knows that ice is a most dreaded word. Uh, must I draw a diagram? <laughs> <laughs> So that's that for the mere bread and butter operating. What about the engineer's job, where the technical romance should be? At Babylon, we didn't get much romance. I believe I was immortalized for a long time with the round ground. And in later years, I had quite a fan mail about it. But really, all my connection with it was to dig the damn trenches under orders, put the zinc sheets in them, and solder up the necessary wires with a blowtorch. And if you have ever tried solving dirty zinc on a cold, windy day with a blowtorch <laughs> in the open, you would probably agree with my immortalization.
The fact that the trench was circular and fitted my name, I must assure you, was quite an accident. <laughs> Incidentally, I may remark that Babylon Trench, which I did really um, dig most of, uh, Howard and I found in 1929 uh, by uh, digging about, we found a bit of zinc stuck up in the middle of the road, wasn't it, between uh, lines of houses. And then we got another bit, and finally we got the sort of uh, what the uh, curvature was, and we got the radius of curvature, and uh, indicated where the mast was, which was in the middle of the house. <laughs> but uh, the fact that uh, that position, uh, that positioned the mast, started us looking round for the hut. And I'm sure if it wasn't right in the field, being used as a paint shed. It's still got the earth wires and uh, holes for insulators to the outside and even some bits of wire work there still uh, in the thing. It, as I said before, it's now the riverhead, I believe. Now. For me, time passed with other stations being built and worked. I, I mean, I, I went and built and worked things. Other stations in distant waters being tested. Uh, one splendid summer. I was lent uh, the Canadian government steamer, the Minto, and I uh, spent all the nicest part of the summer months going around the Gulf of St. Lawrence testing stations. Well, John Leary, I don't know whether you remember him, had put up. I had to go ashore and uh, examine the set and then go out with a government inspector on the ship and see how far we could do, and I could usually fake the signals to get the test through all right. <laughs> but uh, the end of the summer came and we'd arrived at Cape Race. Well, in some of them, extraordinary way or other, they decided to dump me there. And uh, I was there through about two months with practically no food. I think we had a barrel of salt pork, 40 bottles of lime juice, uh, and uh, oh, just uh, all those things that nobody else had wanted and left, you know. <laughs> and I know I, I went out uh, went out to try and get some fresh food. I borrowed off the the lighthouse keeper his gun. Well, he was a he was a an Irishman by descent. He was about six foot six, and his gun was equal in proportion to his six foot six. And I borrowed his dog, who'd never been trained, and insisted always in getting in front of the gun. I went out on the moors to try and get something to eat. Well, I wasn't a sportsman that day. I found two ptarmigans sitting on the ground. I shot them on it. <laughs> the dog wasn't in the light that I brought him home. Well, I, I roasted the first. Well, it's a curious thing. Really, uh, ptarmigans like partridge, you know. Uh, uh, roasted partridge, when you are really hungry and want, want meat, it's horrible, it's too dry, so the second one I stewed. But on another occasion I went out on the boards then, we were very, of course I was very short of vegetables. I used to occasionally get a little bit from the lighthouse, but, uh, which was nearby, but uh, they, they were pretty short of food. And I came across an old cabbage patch. There'd been a hut there or a building there some way back in the past, and this cabbage was the uh, descendants of, I suppose, the cabbage that the people had. Well, I sat down in those cabbages and ate for the next half hour a raw cabbage. <laughs> and that's uh, what used to be hungry. For me, time with other stations being built and worked, other stations in distant water had been tested, but year after year, no fundamental change was apparently taking place. The alternator had slowly replaced the spark coil, and the magnetic detector had come to say that was all. 
However, we were always trying to experiment, and many curious lines were attacked, some of which became of importance later, but which were of no immediate use. At Melbourne in 1903 and 4, in my spare time, I investigated the use of dust cores, the suggestion which I obtained from a German scientific report. I obtained finely divided iron from a New York chemist somewhere in 3rd or 4th Avenue, I remember. I got this iron by hydrogen they sold for used in medical purposes, I believe, and I molded it into shape with paraffin wax. Not much technical information was obtained, but we found that we could use them for tuning both receiver and transmitter. Actually, the knowledge gained for immediate use was nil, but later on, in the First Great War, the knowledge was invaluable. I made quite up a large number, up quite a large number of these coils. The core was usually shaped when warm by rolling it between one's hands, the shape being rather ellipsoidal. The wire was then wound on top. Or if it was a variable thing, uh, uh, there was no wire on it. I'd left Babylon for some time, and one day I met a Marconi engineer, E.J. Watts by name, who apparently had been sent to Babylon to clear up any mess I'd left. <laughs> My golly, said he, what did you do with all that filth you left in that room of yours? Most of it wound with coils of wire. We had to buy a gallon of carbolic acid to disinfect it before we buried it. <laughs> For a moment I was puzzled, and then it occurred to me that the iron powder had rusted over the surface of the paraffin-loaded shapes, giving to a disordered imagination. <laughs> A sinister appearance to the ellipsoids. <laughs> among, among other experiments, with some uh, transmission tests between Babylon, Sagaponic, and Cyrus Concert, which gave, these were done in spare moments, which gave me some very valuable information about land and sea transmission with different frequencies. Oh, by the way, I hear, I've got here the uh, actual articles that I published later on on those uh, tests in the uh, in your, uh, what is the journal, the... Uh, electrical World? Uh, electrical World, I think it is, the New York World. I've got the, um, uh, they've got for me uh, a photo set. So this again was of no immediate value, but later on was of immense value to me during an expedition up the Amazon in 1910. Frame aerials, cosine and cardioid diagrams were investigated, although sometimes more was expected from them than should have been. I hadn't got a very clear idea in my head that I couldn't get more radiation from, uh, from uh, a small frame and a small spiral. I thought I could get more than I could get from a big aerial. I know it's uh, rather a dream. But anyhow, we got the, uh, we got the diagrams. There was a curious sequel to these directional experiments. When Marconi announced his directional aerial work with horizontal aerials, I saw the resemblance his results had to my frame aerial combinations, which were combinations usually of a frame and a, a vertical antenna. And being for a short time free to do so, I believe I was with, at that moment, I will tell you later, I was with the uh, AT&T with the uh, New York Telephone Company. And being for a short time free to do so, I wrote an article in the Electrical World analyzing Marconi's results. Some little time afterwards, Bellini and Tozzi announced their directional aerial system for direction finding. 
Uh, during the First Great War, I used the bellini tozzi direction finder aerial system greatly and, of course, published my work. Incidentally, uh, the Marconi Company were licensed under the bellini tozzi patent, so there was no cribbing there. I met Bellini shortly after the war, and he told me that he had invented his system after reading that original paper of mine in the electrical world when I show how, to, how a frame and a vertical aerial could give a cardioid diagram. He merely did a similar thing with two frame aerials at right angles and arranged to get a cosine diagram shiftable merely by rotating a coupling coil so that again the playing about of Babylon brought a dividend. <laughs> Towards 1906, the picture began to change for me. Marconi's ran short of money and I was asked to find myself another job, at least for a time. I went down, interviewed Edison. I asked him to take me on, but he only, he'd only offer me $12 a week, and I, I didn't quite see how I could live on that. Uh, finally, I landed up in the New York Telephone Company's laboratories in Cortland Street, where I spent a very instructive year, during which I carried out many experiments at night time after my telephone work was done, down in the Marconi Works at Front Street. The Marconi Company said I could still go out going go on working down there as long as I didn't want any money. <laughs> there my first wireless telephone was born, and many of the night I was on the air with an occasional ship's operator hearing me. I don't know whether anybody ever remembers that front street place, but I used to stop there all night in fear and trembling with rats around everywhere, the little pink eyes coming round when I was sleeping on two or three coil boxes laid out. It was too cold very often to come out and go home. All good things come to an end. Three junior engineers of the New York Telephone Company, one of whom was me, had their office in the Dye Street annex of the main building. That is the right word, isn't it? Dye Street, D-U-I, isn't it? There were many tenants in that building other than the telephone people, and so we didn't worry much about the old man in the office next to us who was continuously, uh, continually complaining about the noise we made, the natural noise of enthusiastic use. One fine day, the great amalgamation of AT&T a New York Telephone Company and the Western Electric was announced, with Theodore N. Vale as president. Theodore N. Vale was the old man next door. <laughs> Fortunately for me, Marconi's now had enough in the kitty to take me on again. Else I, might have, else I might have been out of work for a long time. I don't know how the other chaps fared. I never found out. My stay in America was gradually coming to an end. But during the last period, I established a receiving station at the top of the Timers building, primarily to receive the messages to the Times relayed by Glace Bay from England. Uh, I, if my memory is right, uh, a weekly summary of European news was sent by, uh, from England to Glace Bay via Clifton. And uh, previously to this Times building stunt, uh, it had been sent on from Glace Bay by the ordinary telegraph. Uh, but uh, just as, uh, I suppose, a stunt, uh, I was asked to take it uh, by uh, Glace Bay relaying it. Well, that was quite easy. I know the signals were very strong. I made use of that tower for furthering my telephone tests at Front Street. And uh, I, I worked on uh, we were we, we, we did telephony over New York for quite a time between those days. Uh, pretty poverty-stricken telephony. I mean, it was an old ark with uh, 
a curious system of modulation that uh, and the wavelength used to shift uh, on its own. You didn't know where, where to find it on the receiver, but anyhow, it was telephony. We did a final stunt at that Times building by giving direct reporting of a motor car race upstate, minute by minute, on bulletin boards in Broadway. I think that must have been about the first time such things ever done. I had the bulletins were put outside, minute by minute. I took the, I went upstate, took an old 10-inch spark coil, found a suitable hotel with a water tower overlooking this race course, pushed it, uh, pushed an aerial up. I went. Put the aerial up myself. I was scared stiff tying up that water tower. <laughs> because he was on the top of a hill as well. And um, we got this aerial up and uh, I shoved the coil on AC, uh, the, the mains AC. Oh, I don't know whether I left the brake in or not. I forgot that. <laughs> but anyhow, yeah, I was playing the aerial I sent. And uh, signals were excellent in Tyre's building. I didn't want a little bit of tuning to keep my friends De Forest out or so, <laughs> some of the... Uh, perhaps you were jamming, I don't no, know. No, we weren't in that person. My time had come, and I was sent for by the English Marconi Company. I left behind a good many friends, but strangely, very few technical ones. I don't think the U.S. had woke up then uh, to radio like it did a little afterwards. The English Marconi Company I found rather weak financially, but I had been used to being paid in bits in the United States, so it didn't matter to me. Uh, their low water at the time was attributed by some people to the fact that they had moved from Chelmsford and their luck had gone. So back they went to the old town, and I must say things began to look up then. At Chelmsford I erected my wireless telephone with an arc and a carver under detective. Both, you will note, pinched from other inventors. And Mark only came to see it working over a distance of about five miles. <coughs> I remember I had, when that while still telephone, I had Charlie Prince. You remember Prince, don't you? Um, who was a very charming uh, young gentleman. Uh, I had him uh, as my assistant. He was at the other end of this wireless telephone when Mark only came. Uh, we were at Broomfield, uh, an annex to Chelmsford. And um, a prince stuttered. And uh, I uh, picked up the telephone and asked him to talk a bit so Mark only could hear. Well, Prince started the uh, uh, thing from Shakespeare, uh, the, uh, I am no orator as Brutus is. <laughs> But he got as far as orator, and this is what happened. I am no orator. And Mark Honey looked at me and said, What's the matter with this apparatus? This was my second sight of the great man, the first having been in Chicago. But this time, my luck was in, and I achieved my dream of joining him personally. Oh, I suppose he, he rather liked the look of me. I began to make as many measurements as possible, and the first one showed me that the giant station was, uh, was sending out the two waves of a coupled circuit. As coupling adjustments were possible, these were weakened until I was satisfied with the waveform. But now the man at the other end was unhappy with the strength of the signal. And I remember having to contend seriously with the bitter jeers of the transmitting engineers. They didn't like scientific methods. 
Losses were reduced for soldering everything up. It could be soldered, but still we couldn't meet the two conditions. And finally, the only solution was to lengthen the wave, at which new wave, oh, a new wavelength, Clifton, not only sent a single wave, but gave better signals than before. And uh, that last wave was 50, uh, 50 kilocycles, the uh, 6,000 meters. This, of course, was dodging the issue. And I started examining the aerial system. And then I stumbled on the truth. But I, however, to wait until after the first war to prove it. The truth was that at Clifton, of 100 kilowatts put into the spark, about 5 kilowatts was radiated. Most of the rest going to warm up the bog land up under the antenna. <laughs> I'm afraid, uh, I don't wish uh, against, uh, to say anything derogatory against my old chief, but uh, Marconi, in this case, had stuck to his idea of horizontal aerials a little too long. They were neither directional nor efficient. Thinking over this problem afterwards, one arrived at a curious conclusion. If this antenna had been made efficient, as I made it in later years with an earth screen, the Q value would have been so high that instead of sending a signal of 300 sparks per second and giving a nice crisp receiving tone, all the sparks would have run into one another. I can imagine my fate if that uh, Marconi contented to putting up the earth screen that I wanted there, and my fate with the uh, engineers, and uh, we tried to run that, uh, run uh, with that uh, transmitter. You see the, um, well anyhow, only two answer answers could have been given to that. Either to raise the mass system to three or four times the height, which the company I knew had got enough money to do, or to time the sparks and make CW of them. Uh, CW of them. The real answer, of course, came afterwards. But uh, I don't know how we'd have answered if we'd done it, because the, at that time the, uh, the earth screen had gone up. Uh, we should have immediately put on the disc transmitter, and there'd be the most awful noise coming out uh, <laughs> at the other end, and there'd be no gain in strength. In the world outside Marconi, great developments were taking place. The arc was being made to deliver high power CW. Alternators were being built and used, and new methods of reception suitable to CW were being evolved. Somewhere about 1912, 1913, one of the major discoveries of the art was made by one of your members. I remember reading in a technical journal a short note about John L. Hogan's discovery of the crystal heterodyne. I was so intrigued that I promptly put up a circuit to receive Clifton I was down at Chomsford, but fitted it with the most insensitive detector that I could think of. With an, adjust with an adjustable arc, I arranged the heterodyne, this detector. Clifton was quite inaudible without the heterodyne, but came in loudly as a scratch when the heterodyne was turned on a tune. I then tried one more experiment. With a good crystal receiver on a certain aerial going up to the top of a mast, I could get a very fair Clifton. I could get very fair Clifton signals, but on lowering the aerial to half the height, the signals vanished. That was a very normal effect with the ordinary uh, rectification. Then the heterodyne was turned on, and the signals reappeared. And then I could hold them until the aerial was lying on the ground. These tests satisfied me that I had now a detector which was linear down to zero signals, a point of even greater importance in the later superheterodyne. Certainly the ticker had been linear, but its crudity left it in the background. 
Great things were obviously brewing from all directions. Marconi had now serious competition and he redoubled his efforts to keep in front, but his real success, of course, was to come later. I think I can call this the finish of an era because the world was ready to explode with a new discovery, the like of which in importance may not be seen again. I'd better just tell the story as it happened to me, leaving you and others to fill up the gaps you know about, and perhaps I didn't. And I'm rather afraid I should tell this story in a rather feeble way. In 1912, I was at Glace Bay, and during my stay there, I attempted some directional tests to see from what direction atmospherics were coming, if any, in particular. Uh, they were so strong that uh, it was quite easy to get uh, directions on them. My tests indicated that they were coming most of the time uh, uh, I listened from a direction nearly opposite to signals, but any aerial system I could put up without enormous expense to give the effective cardioid diagram, heart-shaped diagram, so as to prevent the backside of the, uh, to, to, so as to present the backside of the diagram to these axes was too insensitive uh, from the front to give us signals. One of the very best on the very best aerials, we only got one volt across the detector. When we dropped, uh, and when we dropped a half a volt, the signals nearly vanished. My assistant at Glace Bay was Mr. J. G. Robb, who uh, incidentally has just retired. <coughs> and I said to him, "We definitely must find some means of magnifying signals before the rectifier to enable us to use reasonably sized aerials instead of these enormous ones." The aerial, the receiving aerial at Glace Bay, two wires, each 6,000 feet long and 200 feet high, which was uh, not easy to uh, play about with. It was then that I sketched out my first valve. It was a cylindrical glass tube containing a filament completely surrounded by a grid, and that, in turn, was surrounded by an anode. I didn't pretend to know what I was going to do with it, but I determined to get it made and see if something, uh, somehow, it would do something. I got back to England in early 1913 and immediately asked the Eddie Swan Lamp Factory to make me some. I had about half a dozen minutes, I think. But presently the tubes arrived and I laid them down in my room. And there they lay for a month or so, but uh, I still couldn't decide what to do with them. Early in that year, early, just about that time, my great confrere, Mr. C.S. Franklin, the beam man, went to Berlin and came back with some leaden rice tubes and what was still more important, circuit diagrams for amplifying and oscillating. At that time, over the uh, Marconi Company, I think, had just made an, uh, uh, an interchange agreement with the telephone people, or I'd made it some little time before. Without hesitation, I picked up the tubes I had made as a pure shot in the dark and which I had been quite unable to decide how to use and applied to them the Meissner circuits for amplifying and oscillating. First as amplifiers. Clifton from a weakish signal came up to a tremendous strength. And then I got Glace Bay in daytime, which I had never been able to do before. But that was rather a struggle. Then I tackled the question of oscillating with power and even with those little tubes I could produce nearly a watt of oscillation energy. A few minor improvements were necessary. The original carbon and tungsten filaments were replaced by oxide-coated platinum following the leading tube, and a larger tube was put in hand for transmitting. The small receiving tube, uh, unfortunately there's no uh, copy of those tubes here, 
It, uh, they're, uh, they're considerably bigger than those uh, little babies. Now, it was really uh, a soft tube like the leaven rice tube. The grid mesh was sufficiently fine to give the grid a smooth control even when the discharge was visible. <coughs> and it usually was, uh, you, uh, they usually blew glowed. But the, uh, that blue glow was perfectly controlled in the grid circuit. Uh, and you probably remember that the Audion wouldn't control. It used to flood about 30 volts. It flopped into a blue uh, discharge. For reception, uh, circuits were designed and standardized. Alterations being uh, merely made uh, for different frequency ranges. These circuits were all based on the German plans. The plan was to apply a tuned grid and a tuned plate circuit to the valve and then by means of a rectifier apply to the plate circuit to get the low frequency effect. The Germans actually uh, cleverly reflexed this circuit by putting the low frequency back through the tube, the two different frequency signals be on top of one another. Franklin suggested applying feedback up to near the oscillating point to still further enhance effects. These valves of mine, which were a pure accident, enabled us to start the war very much ahead of the Germans. And they gave us a breathing time to get hard valves into a sensitive shape. All uh, the story of their war use and the later developments of, uh, of hard valves, uh, you, anyone will find in that paper of mine uh, on direction finding, so I won't go into any details. Uh, you'll find it far more fully than I could possibly give you. And uh, Major Armstrong has, I believe, had a number of copies of this paper photosetted. During the war, the development of hard tubes went on a pace everywhere, and of course the soft valve could now be forgotten, but he'd done its job nobly by holding the fort. The war had finished, and we could now, now look around to see where the new weapon could be applied. Long distance was being revolutionized by CW work, and the valve had made heterodyne reception easy. But there were so many fields it could now be tackled. Telephony was a great attraction. And I immediately started the erection of a powerful valve transmitter modulated by the voice. Chelmsford was the first big one, uh, about 15 kilowatts in the aerial. And I think uh, this was the first broadcasting station in the world, but only for a short time. Official frowned on using radio for amusement and shut us up. <laughs> Not before, however, we managed to broadcast to three or four great, great celebrities, Melba sang 11 songs for me. And uh, your operatic tenor here, Melchior, came down in his young days then, and nearly smashed the microphone with his voice. We stood him about five yards away, I think, from the mic to keep him down. Melba was rather interesting. She, uh, I took her into the little... Uh, room where I got a microphone, which was an ordinary uh, car microphone, you know, that uh, you use on the telephone. That was strung up. Uh, oh, the microphone is in existence now. I got her to sign it, and uh, I had a little cone on it. You may have seen the picture of a little thing with a, with a cardboard cone on it. I still got them. She, um, I stood her about two yards away from this. And uh, I was just saying, uh, would she do this and that? And she said, Mr. Inventor, you leave this to me. I'm quite expert at that. I, I know all about this. Well, of course, I didn't know much about it, and I agreed with her. I let her, let her rip. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 
I know the first that she sang two songs. Everything went all okay. But I... Uh, and then uh, the third song, an intermediate bow bust on the panel. I'd got a, a pair of telephones on my head listening to, uh, listening to what was going on. Uh, I was wandering around outside the buildings listening. And suddenly I heard just zero and uh, my assistant Ditchum came out and he said, valve gone. I said, how long did it take to repair it? But to put another one in, no, it's about two minutes. So I rushed into Melba and I said, Madam Melba, the world is calling for more. Hmm. I hadn't told her first we'd broken down. <laughs> she said, are they? <laughs> she was only down by contract with the Daily Mail, one of our newspapers, to sing three songs. So I got her to sing up to a total of 11 songs <laughs> on, the, on the strength of that breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, with that Modi's great baths and all these wives about the poor dear, didn't know but what I was getting messages from all the world. Uh, telephony for communication was then, then attempted across the North Sea. Uh, I erected a fairly short wave, not nowadays, but a short then, 100 meter two-way wireless telephone between the English and the Dutch coasts and uh, duplexed uh, the circuit and connected Amsterdam to London and made a lot of demonstrations. And um, uh, this uh, station on the English side was the one I sent my brother up to Norway. And uh, I notice on the, uh, the back there it mentions uh, on this uh, card, it mentions that uh, uh, the 100 meter wave uh, that I demonstrated its long nighttime range by transmission from England and from the Netherlands to Norway. Uh, the transmission was all day to Norway, a distance of about 800 miles of that station, which was a much more important thing than the uh, night uh, communication, which was, of course, as a usual thing, very loud. I, uh, I was up in Norway about two months ago. And previously, I'd always had to take my brother's word for the reception, but he had a Norwegian with him, and I met that Norwegian, and he told me uh, he exactly duplicated all the reports I'd had before from my brother. Somehow, Clifton and Glace Bay nearly got forgotten. In fact, I haven't got a very clear memory of uh, when they vanished now, but as soon as I produced a respectable number of fairly large glass valves, I determined to put them in at Clifton. In the meantime, I'd started some research on that point I had mentioned earlier. That is, the terrible inefficiency of Clifton's aerial. We did a very big piece of research on uh, the ground return resistance down uh, near Chelmsford in one of the large fields there. And on the strength of those tests, we put an earth screen under the, the Clifton antenna. The resistance of that antenna had been five ohms always. The earth screen brought it down to half an ohm. More nearly, it, uh, it roughly checked the radiation resistance of an area of that height. Of course, for, for valve working, conditions were now very lovely. There were some nice 100 volt DC machines there, with plenty of power, and high tension telegraph keys with blowers all in situ. So we put up a six valve panel with just simple feedback, using a grid condenser, grid resistance, and condenser to give us class C. And away she went with 100 amps in the aerial. The same old currents the spark had, but obtained scientifically and simply, not with brute force, with not more than 10 kilowatts input. 
I left the station working with that. Of course, Glace Bay loved it, and I left them to get on with the service. Those who are interested will find a full account in an early number of the old Radio Review, where I gave all the figures. Uh, in about, I should say it was about 1921 or 22 I published it. One curious local incident can be noted. The Irish of Galway are very superstitious. For years, they had been used to the roar of the Clifton Spark, which was audible for miles, and the accompanying brilliant flashes of the telegraph keys, which lit up the roof of the giant condenser house. Suddenly, the noise all vanished, but the flashes went on just the same. There was consternation all over the bugland until all was happily explained to them. I won't weary you but telling you how I treated the still larger Carnarvon station with valves, which at first were glass ones, 50 in number, but later on they became water-cooled, five in number. Uh, I believe uh, I've seen a picture of the Carnarvon bank of valves. The uh, Carnarvon station I treated in exactly the same way with a nurse screen, and we succeeded with this bank of valves getting 400 amperes in the aerial, which uh, gave easy signals everywhere in uh, all over the world. Uh, we can pass that round, the bank of glass valves. Uh, just uh, an interesting little story about a great character of the time with regard to this. Uh, I, I, my assistants erected that big panel of valves, and. Barring Clifton's six valves, we'd never paralleled anything like the number there. I think there were 50 there. And we hadn't uh, run into any of the, what later we call, squigger trouble. The valves were erected, all the circuits arranged for, everything was tuned on very low voltage. And uh, a great man came down to see us, Dr. Ambrose Fleming. Well, Dr. Ambrose Fleming was very deaf, extremely deaf, very, very deaf. He carried about four four of these uh, deaf aid things, one in each pocket, and they pull one out of half a dozen off the table. And um, he came up to the station where we were going to start. Mind you, we hadn't probably tuned up on high power or anything like that. But he picked up a chair and sat in front of that valve panel that you see the photograph of, about two yards away. Uh, my assistant, Ditchum, stood by the telegraph key, and another man stood by excited for the great uh, generator. It was a 300 kilowatt, 10,000 watt machine, of course regulatable upwards. I think, did you know, he asked me what voltage I should put on. I said, oh, let's re put on about 6,000. So he put on 6,000. I gave the signal, placed the key. Suddenly there was one enormous bang behind me <laughs> from the direction of the machine. Uh, with a brilliant light, apparently, but I, I, the light that worried me was about uh, 20 of the 50 valves all going up in smoke. <laughs> Dr. Fleming, who, as I tell you, was really stone deaf. I suppose he heard no noise, but he saw this flash. He got up from his seat. He said, what was that? What was that? What was that? <laughs> and, uh, a, um, well, uh, what was that? Anyhow, and it took us two weeks to find out how to stop that, because it was uh, the usual cross-oscillation between uh, banks of valves on. Actually, the wavelengths produced uh, was 90 meters uh, instead of the uh, 16,000 meters yeah. uh, that we wanted. But to, uh, with such an expensive arrangement, it was uh, a little bit troublesome to 
find out how these, uh, how to cure this system. But I conquered the difficulty by going on low voltage and increasing the possible uh, possible uh, means of, of coupling between the valves. And in that way, um, I found out what the trouble was. Well, to carry on with the work, just a few words more, and carry on with the work, we went on with direction finders. They were put on a commercial basis, chiefly for ship uh, working. <coughs> Transmitter valves were put on ships, giving at once enormous ranges in place of the short ranges in previous use. During the war, I developed cascade hard valve amplifiers, as you see that pamphlet, for fairly short waves. But I realized that straight amplification methods were going to be limited some, somewhere by the valve capacities. Even with the most modern valves, the limit still exists, so it's, uh, although it's uh, probably not much lower down the scale. Just before the war, when we were in the middle of digesting all the new knowledge, I heard that there was a young man in New York with a black box who was performing radio beats, which sounded rather like what we were doing. <coughs> I forgot about it until one day, in October 1917, there arrived in my laboratory in London, packed in uniform, a large American youth named Armstrong. As he had all the necessary credentials, I got into a huddle with him immediately, and I don't seem to have got out of it yet. <laughs> his, his first move was to show me that he could beat me hands down by producing in quite a short period the superheterodyne. And of course, as you know, it was followed by one damn thing after another, while we weaker fry were just plodding along. I'm very much honored here tonight for receiving this medal, named after my great friend, who is in some respect, who in some respects I know regard as my master. Although during the war one was able to construct stable... No, this is a new paragraph. Although during the war one was able to construct stable cascade amplifiers with such methods as I described in my uh, direction writing paper, they were not really economical solutions. We wanted to use the full power of the tube in each stage without running into trouble, particularly with uh, shorter and shorter waves. Very soon after the war, I determined to solve the problem in another way. The difficulty, as you all know, was this. You connected an input circuit to a triode, and then you put on an output circuit. Now, the only connection between these circuits should be one way, that is, through the valve action. But unfortunately, there's another connection in which energy can flow backwards, not in quantities uh, our friend here was talking about, but uh, sufficient uh, <laughs> to produce damage. But unfortunately, there is another connection in which energy can flow backwards, and that is through the grid plate capacity, which is comparatively large. Broadcasting so soon brought out a demand for some solution of the difficulty. The better the valve, the more trouble we had. Solutions of this problem were given by neutralizing methods, which we actually used in some of my earliest uh, valve circuits, but which were brought to perfection by my friend, uh, Professor Hazeltine. I determined in 1919 to see if it was not possible to make a valve in which that capacity connection was missing. And I got made up some four electrode valves, very like those small valves you had passed round. They had one more pip on the side, as I wished also to maintain the small shunt capacity. <coughs> There were, however, two grids, the first one being the usual control, and the second one, a finer meshed one, which I call the screening grid. 
With a number of these tubes, I immediately built up a most wonderfully stable, uh, stable amplifier with three and four stages of amplification. Of course, I immediately approached the paint authorities, who at once dashed all my hopes to the ground by showing me a patent by the German Schottky, dated 1916 with exactly the same device. The hours were in production within, and considerable quantities produced. So I turned to and devised a one-valve amplifier for ship use, which was really the original German soft-valve reflex circuit, but without a crystal. I used the plate for rectification. This amplifier gave ships all they wanted and was pleasing to the management who were getting worried about the idea of cascade amplifiers on ships and all the replacement costs. Privately, I used these valves for shielded amplifiers, but it was not until two years later that I came across a scientific paper on four electrode valves by Schottky, dated 1919. And I was very much astonished to find that although he was aware of the electrostatic shielding action, he wasn't interested in it. In fact, he said, in fact, that in view of the neutraline, uh, the anti-capacity effect is not of importance. He was merely after the altered characteristics of the tube in which when, when plate voltage is altered by the action of the control grid, uh, the altered voltage does not alter conditions around the control grid, uh, control grid. I'm afraid it was pride that had held me back before. I didn't want to be accused of taking another man's invention, but here was the man himself saying he's not invented what I wanted. So saying to myself, it's up to the business people to settle our patent question, let's, let's get ahead with the job. Valve manufacturers had strongly objected to my small tube design, and I had an awful time to get them, make a get them to make a double-ended job. But I finally persuaded them to make some tubes in which the filament and control grid came out at one end of the tube, and the plate and screen at the other. And the screen was brought right up to the glass so that it could be continued by outside screening. These tubes I finally succeeded in issuing with a series of amplifiers for broadcasting purposes, and they started the ball rolling in England. Uh, screen tubes for all purposes. In your country, development on similar lines had gone on, which I had not heard of until Hull's publication. <coughs> but for the misunderstanding on my part, I should have had tubes out as early as 1922. There's a little book of mine written in 1926 on screen valves, which I put out at the same time as the vows were issued. And I was very surprised to find that that book apparently, uh, it had never come to the notice of Howard. And uh, we found one copy in uh, the New York Library, wasn't it, I think? But that's all we can find here. So that I didn't uh, get any more notoriety out of that. One last trouble in valves had to be solved. The new screen grid had given a curious kink to the valve characteristic, making it necessary to use two different voltages for the screen and plate. Recognizing this kink as due to the hull dynatron effect and secondary emission, I reasoned out that a very old mesh grid between the screen and plate should cure the trouble. It did the trick. And so for me, the pentode was born. I disclaim any idea that I knew that this was a good valve for power purposes. I didn't think of using it for power, I merely wanted an HF pentode. Mrs. Phillips of Holland patent for pentodes was in the patent office at the same time as mine. 
but a little earlier. Under the paint law, I get the high-frequency painter and Mrs. Phillips get the power painter. <laughs> Both patents were issued. Anyhow, neither of us cribbed it, I'm pretty sure, from the other. What a ham to the Schottky paint, I never inquired for the patent people. I don't know why they, uh, they didn't get something out of it. That was my last effort in building up instruments for direct radio purposes. The weapons were now sharpened and the field for use was very wide. Some of these fields I've interested myself in, but of course there never will be a time like 1914 again. I've deliberately left out in this account the revolution caused by Marconi with the shortwave beams. But Major Armstrong has so very thoroughly treated this in his Edison Metal paper. Uh, and as I supplied him with most of this information, I thought uh, it unnecessary to bring it up again. I thank you, gentlemen, for your kindness. So that was a marathon and a half. Captain Round, back in 1952, accepting the Armstrong Medal at the RCA, the Radio Club of America. Quite a beast of a recording, by far our longest podcast, but this is a special, after all, and it's not over yet. Captain Rond, uh, I want to thank you for a delightful paper. I think that uh, the tribute that you have had of the attention of the entire group is a complete endorsement of the interest that we have shown in your reminiscences. Uh, I hope they'll be published. I'd like to read them again. If you want even more, here's the introduction that on the night came first. This is the tribute from E. Howard Armstrong, trimmed by 15 minutes or so. I hope you'll forgive me. I lost my way a lot in that 15 minutes, so I took the initiative. If anyone is desperate for that missing chunk, do get in touch and we'll see what we can do. It's worth adding too that Armstrong sadly took his own life just a year and a bit after this recording, after complicated financial disputes and a domestic incident. Yeah. So, for now though, here is the man whose name is on the medal. The creator of FM and, they say, the most prolific and influential inventor in radio history. Giving the tribute to Captain Round, it's E. Howard Armstrong. Yes, Mr. Toastmaster. Come up here and get by the mics. I'll try to span this gulf between the view that you've had into the future tonight and the view that (coughs) Captain Round is going to give you into the past. I'm bound to say, though, that uh, I feel tonight pretty much the way the builders of the all-spark rock crushes must have felt when some of us youngsters began using the word electron in the radio art. I rather feel like going fishing. A lot of those fellas did too. But it didn't make any difference. And it wouldn't make any difference what us old-timers do now about it. It's the youngsters that want to take their cue from what was said here tonight and tie it in with some of the things that I know our medalist will tell you 
of the ancient days and then look where we are tonight and try and forecast where the youngsters are going to be 25, 30 years from now. Well, now, you've already read uh, the citation and you know some of the boundaries within which Captain Round has worked. But if you left it to him to tell you the most important things, you would go home without hearing the story. So I'm going to tell you them. If you look through the classic paper entitled Direction and Position Finding by Captain H.J. Round, 30 pages of the most comprehensive treatment of the subject, you will find tucked away somewhere this one small statement with reference to an equally great event. Quote, when one examines the scale of a direction finder and sees how small a thing one degree is, it seems almost impossible that the accuracy we obtained was possible with the number of quite big errors that we had to correct and the many small ones we could not disentangle. The extent to which direction finding was trusted by the authorities was really remarkable. And I can instance one case where a most important event in the history of the British Navy was brought about by an observed motion of less than one and one half degrees in the daytime. Not until the opening of the discussion of that paper do you discover what this one and a half degree deviation was all about. Reading from the remarks of Admiral of the Fleet, Sir Henry Jackson, you will find the following quotation. And it refers to the prelude to the meeting of the British and German fleets at the Battle of Jutland in May, on May 31st, 1916. Quote, I was first sea lord at the time and so was responsible for the disposition of the Grand Fleet. If the German fleet got to sea first, the chance of a meeting in waters not unfavorable to us was remote. Our object was to try to get to sea before or shortly after the Germans, and hitherto we had not succeeded in doing so. Later on, in the afternoon, it was reported to me that the German ship conducting the wireless had changed her position a few miles to the northward. This is across 300 miles of sea. 
evidently she, evidently she and her consorts had left the basins at Willemshaven and had taken up a position in the Jade River ready to put to sea. This movement decided me to send our grand fleet to sea and move toward the German Bight at once and try to meet the German fleet and bring it to action. This they did with their usual promptitude and the result was the famous Battle of Jutland and it was directly brought about by the careful and accurate work of Captain Round and his staff for which I hope they will now accept my belated thanks and appreciation. I and some others here this evening have some first-hand knowledge of the magnitude of the problems faced and successfully solved by Captain Round. We all join belatedly in the privilege of honoring him tonight. And I know that all of you will join with us in expressing the hope that in the event of any future disturbance of the peace of the wild, which God forbid we have, that we have again with us on our side, helping us, the future Captain Rounds, who will do as good a job for us as he did 30 years ago. Well, we've been here long enough. There won't be a quiz based on the technical content of this. I will just say no more than thank you to David Jervis and family for permission to use it. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for sharing this podcast too. And thank you for sharing kind words about this podcast. Some of you have lately, and that's been incredibly kind of you. It is just me here, so it is vastly appreciated. This isn't one of those podcasts with the might of the BBC behind it, because this is nothing to do with the BBC, I do have to note that. We don't have a big production company. We don't have a producer or a backer or anything. So you are the backers. If you like what we do, do tell people, support us at patreon.com slash paulcarenza or paypal.me slash paulcarenza if you like. And thank you to those who have. Uh, lately, Sean Jacks, the Irish Broadcasting History dude, check out their marvellous stuff online as well. Chris Queen, Julie, uh, Phil S, Phil Barber, Richard Kenny, Neil Jackson, James Morgan, Jackie, Russ Anderson, Andrew Barker, Alan Evans, Mark Loveday combined between you lot over the past few months you have helped us out in some way or other a few quid here a few quid there it's bought me books and now i've got to read them do please share rate and review if you like what we do join us next time for another special this time with a parliamentary flavor as we head to westminster 1922 with big decisions on whether broadcasting should be allowed and how here on the British Broadcasting Century.
presented and produced by Paul Carenza. Original music is composed by Will Farmer. Thank you to David Jervis for the archive clips in this episode. Well, I say clips, clip. It was one long one. Stay informed, educated and entertained and join us next time for the Parliamentary Special on the British Broadcasting Century.